Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. This is episode 116. Today we're doing Samir Banut. And this is Steve Smee and the Mobster joining me. How's it going, man? All good. All right. So Samir Banut, guys. Um, the interest, there's a couple of really cool facts with Samir Banu right off the bat. Um, what's cool about Samir is he won the Mr. Olympia in 1983, but he won it once. And um, that's kind of not the norm because usually with Mr. Olympia, you see guys, they'll win it like over the course of years, like Ronnie Coleman, Jay Cutler, and, you know, they'll win it year after year, like Arnold did in the seventies, or they'll, you know, they'll always, they'll be first place, second place, first place, second place. So Samir, he hit, Hit it in 1983, and that was his peak. Um, he was born in, in Lebanon. He is known, a lot of guys out there in the fitness world, mobster, they love his physique more than anyone because yeah, yeah. he was similar to the physiques of the late 70s, of the big guys in the late 70s, but with him, he was even more muscular than them. So he was not only lean, but he had size to him, especially like in his legs and in his arms. So he kind of, um, he was basically Arnold, but like a shorter version of Arnold. So I think that he got a big, a lot of, a lot of guys really look up, look up to that. So his stats at his peak were five, seven on a good day. Um, I, I don't know. I never, you know, met him, but I think that five, seven is probably, more like five six or maybe five five and a half 215 pounds lean was his maximum weight and we're going to talk about his, his mr olympia weight later and you know he cut down really into the, into the 180s and i know mobster you want to talk about that in a bit so yeah. a couple more facts on him before we kind of um i bring you in mobster he was nicknamed the lion of lebanon and his thick back was something else that really took a lot of people by shock back in the, in the, in the early 80s. And they called it the Lebanon cedar back. And the reason for that is in Lebanon, um, if you, if you kind of go in the central part of the country, and, and I've, I've been to the Middle East, I've been to 50 different countries. I know you guys know that on the forums. I, um, I speak a bunch of languages. I've been to a bunch of countries. But um, in Lebanon, they have something called the cedars. And it's a big national park. And they have cedar trees and, and during the winter it snows and it's very, very beautiful. So that's kind of why he got that nickname, um, the cedar back. So, yeah. So mobster. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit your thoughts. I, 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 he's one of his fellows and you and I said this in the pre-show He's very aesthetic, uh, bordering on now what would be the classic physique type, uh, with a little bit of added muscle. Um, a great poser, and that's, uh, no doubts whatsoever. You and I are going to touch on in a little while how he still looks pretty damn good for uh, a guy that will be 65 by the time this podcast comes out, which is amazing. And in fact, something I said off air, people, is here's the thing, right? With, with a guy like Samir, 
who was uh, around the 200 pounds mark when he won the Mr. Olympia, it, it's kind of easy for a guy his height and his weight. I say easy, relatively easy, to have this great look. And you can keep elements of that great look for a very, very long time. I think one one thing that uh, Steve uh, did in, in the article, which we, we, which we use as a reference to this, is that he had a, an interesting, very much like Sergio Olivia, there was, a, there was a weightlifting, powerlifting background, which kind of got him in to being a bodybuilder. So, and in fact, in, in my research for today's podcast, he was putting up some pretty good numbers, Steve, in, in, in both Olympic lifting and in powerlifting before he made the switch over to bodybuilding. So there was definitely something of a foundation there as well. Um, and something else which, 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 which we're going to get into uh, properly in a little while is here's a guy that was almost, man, kind of there, but not quite there for a long time. And even in recent interviews, he addresses how, it, how, how he was overtraining, how he was making mistakes and how he had to learn from that. And we'll get into that in a minute in order for him to then become a very good looking uh, Mr. Olympia. And I've got to say, I'm just going back on my memory here when I think about it. He was in, I think, a couple of Muscle Mag Internationals and you're, you're looking at his Olympia reports and seeing this guy, you go, oh man, every single time he's missing it, every single time he's making a mistake, he's kind of missed his peak or whatever else. When he brought it, when he came in hot, when he came, I think it was a kind of shock to people and you truly saw what he'd always been capable of. And it was a kind of shock. And maybe that helped him a little bit as well. When he comes out on stage and the judges look up and suddenly see, oh, my God, finally, Sammy is there. Bang. That's almost a guarantee, I suppose, in this way for him to be number one. And that helps him win. And something else that you, you, you've made a comment on, Steve, is he was literally the last of the small guys. As soon as after this, everybody started to be 222, 230, 240, 250, and up, and getting up to crazy levels like with Ronnie up at 296, I think, at one point. Yeah, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, and and that's that's one of the things too. And and we're gonna talk about also now at his age, uh, there was a video of him being at 62 and his physique, and I was mentioning the mobster at the beginning of the show. You can look really lean at 62 and have a lean physique, but to have size and abs the way he does at 62 is extremely unusual. So he's definitely on some stuff, okay? He's definitely on the steroids. He's on the HGH. We're going to talk about it because you're not going to be at 62 looking that big in that rip at the same time. So. But before we talk about, we're going to talk about his training and his more of his Mr. Olympic. Before that, we have to talk about how he got into bodybuilding because this is interesting. Um, so when he was younger, he was a teenager, and he talks about this on the Rick Drazen video, which which we'll link in the show notes, which is a really fascinating video because he's a very eloquent guy um, when he talks. Very very different than other other guys in 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 the bodybuilding world who are kind of brain dead i would say uh no offense but he's more he's more open he, he gives yeah. more information exactly and he's he's very eloquent that. when he talks very very intelligent very eloquent so when when samir he was in beirut and he was riding his bicycle i believe to the movies was his story or he was riding it to to do something i, I can't remember do you remember what he was riding it to mobster i think it was oh. a 
I, I think he says an Eric Dracing interview. Um, it might have been to a football game. I think he was on his way somewhere for sure. And it's literally yeah, yeah. just he, yeah. seen this the window, like you say. Exactly. Yeah. So he he was riding by and he looked in the window and he saw a, 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 a bodybuilding magazine. And he was like, as soon as he saw it, he was like, he went and got it and he forgot about the rest of his plans. He was supposed to meet up with people or something. Forgot about the rest of it. He took the magazine and he started reading it. And that's when it got hooked him, got him hooked. So in Lebanon, um, it's one of the countries, steroids are legal. You can like go to the pharmacy and grab steroids. And he, you know, it's a, there's a, a weightlifting culture in Lebanon. It's one of the more uh, countries that are into weightlifting. It's um, so he kind of helped birth that in Lebanon, him, him being a, a bodybuilder. So it's thanks to him that really it grew. So over time, he, he ended up coming to the United States. Um, and he started competing in the Mr. Universe uh, medium category. He was only 19 when this happened. So he was the youngest competitor and he got seventh place. So um, he ended up immigrating to the United States. And then five years later, what happened? He won the IFBB World Amateur Championship. He got his pro card. So in the next few years, he got, you know, uh, he competed in the Olympias. He competed at the toughest competitions. He would always get top 10. And then in 1982, uh, he got fourth place at the Mr. Olympia. And that was when he started peaking. So 1983, the next year, it was in Germany. He stepped on stage with Lee Haney and Frank Zane. And Frank Zane's another guy that, you know, you can, you can compare Frank Zane to Samir Banut, but Samir Banut had bigger size than Frank Zane, I would argue. So... And he beat them all. He beat them all. He became the sixth man to win Mr. Olympia. And it was only his fourth time attempting it. So his weigh-in for the Mr. Olympia was only 196 pounds. So, and that's something Mobster mentioned earlier. Another very, very interesting fact, Mobster. He's the last Mr. Olympia champion to weigh in at under 200 pounds. Can you believe that? Under 200 pounds. And now if guys post on the forum that they weigh 195 pounds, they get flamed. For using steroids and he's he's at 196 as a mr yeah. olympia champion now when mr olympia champions they're like at fucking 260 280 oh yeah you know? so hey. yeah man and then um but unfortunately you know that was his peak and then you can argue the next year he dropped down to sixth place in mr olympia and that was pretty much done that was that was it um for uh, the aesthetic look and then from there lee haney basically um, everyone was trying to chase Lee Haney after that. Your your guy over there, Lee Haney. Lee, Lee Haney's uh, from Atlanta, I believe, or, or down the, the the southern part of America. Something yeah. that you, Stephen, you'd be able to tell the, the listeners here. Beirut, uh, Lebanon, where he came from, I believe, as we said, we think we, we're saying that he was born in 1955, and Beirut. For whether you, I believe, I think he was actually from a semi-wealthy family. They weren't rich, they weren't poor. They were somewhere in the middle, probably middle class, with a few extra, a few extra dollars or whatever. Beirut is a tough place, no matter what kind of money you've got. Certainly in 1955, and probably for the next 10, 15, 20 years, to 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 be brought brought up in. So, regardless of your background and the, and any advantages that you might have had, being able to go to weightlifting clubs, being able to buy stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Beirut was, uh, I'll, I'll be crude, it was a hellhole. Uh, 55, 60, and 65 for sure. There, yeah. there are many 
photographs online with the place being blown to smithereens and holes in the building and explosions. So you got to, I, I think sometimes with a guy like Samir, you have certain advantages in terms of your, your parental background, your, your brother being into powerlifting and so on, that kind of stuff, and obviously genetics. But the drive, I'm thinking maybe sometimes with these things, you come from this place is really horrible. Uh, it's being blown. There's a lot of battles going on. There's a lot of political stuff going on. And the drive to become successful, as Samir did, and in his way now, you and I both listened to the same interviews, he's happy to be where he is. He appreciates being where he is. He understands his success. And that's probably why he comes across so well on his interviews, because his background, his foundation, what drove him to become a great bodybuilder and, and eventually Mr. Olympia, I think it's come from that kind of situation. It's like be in, a, in a, to come from a war zone and to become a Mr. Olympia, that's, that's a hell of a journey, don't you think? Yeah. When I broke up with my girlfriend, I was really nasty broke up. So that's why I went to Beirut to get her out of my mind to find some peace. So that's that's why I did it. So that's my second joke in the past five minutes. And Mobster, Mobster's completely well, lost. He doesn't get my sense of humor. Because <laughs> she was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So yeah, yeah, um, Lebanon had a lot of problems. They had um, um, a lot of problems, especially after World War II. Um, they basically separated the country from the Ottoman Empire. And it, there was a lot of um, ideological and religious, you know, factions that formed. And um, yeah, they, they definitely had some issues. So he, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you want to get out of somewhere. I mean, at one point in Lebanon, they had snipers on top of roofs shooting right. other people right. just because they, they could. You know, it's a, in a war, you get to kill people and get away with it. I mean, that's, that's, that's what happens in wars. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's definitely uh, one of those things. And I agree with you, him coming from a place like that, now he's just in heaven. It's just, it's like you yeah. died and went to heaven. He came to, I believe, South California, um, LA. I mean, gosh, who wouldn't love to live in, in, in LA? I mean, you got the beach, you got the women. I mean, to him, it's, it's, uh, it's like dying and going to heaven. So, yep. One of the things he says, and I think in the interviews that we're going to refer to, guys, is he loves life. He, he comes across very much in that way, and he says as much. He says, I like, I like being able to train. I, I love my life. I love my experience. And, and this is because of that. I mean, this is a thing. And, and I'll just touch on this very, very quickly, guys. I like to train. I like to be strong. I like to go to the gym. And this Samir is saying exactly that sort of thing. This isn't a grind. This isn't some great, horrible thing for him. Not, ev not even not winning as many competitions as perhaps he could have done. And even making the mistakes, which we'll get into in a minute. He loves to train. He likes to talk about how he loves to train. He comes across as a very passionate guy. Maybe there's a little bit of element of the Middle East in there being so passionate. But I think it's just, I'm healthy. I've got my, 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 I'm married. I've been married for years. I'm having a great relationship. You guys are asking me questions about this stuff. I enjoyed my time as Mr. Olympia. People, he, he, he's still respected in the community. People like him. He comes across really well. He's done as the supposing exhibitions. Uh, in the Masters Olympia, he looks great, as you said already. And I think he loves, literally loves 
training and being able to go to the gym and doing all the things that he's done. And this comes across really, really as a passionate guy. Uh, and you, when you, you're kind of lifted a little bit when you listen to him talking, saying, you know, that's how I want to be when I'm 65. That's how I want to be when if I've still got a you have to. You have to be positive in life to be successful. You're yeah. not going to meet anyone who's in their 60s and 70s who's not just happy about life. And if you don't, those are the people who their kids threw them into a nursing home or they're broke and they're living, you know, um, you know, getting their social security, their $300 social security check every month. And they're living off of that. And they're just pretty much broke. But the, the, a lot of seniors, you know, they love life and they, they're able to live, but you're, you know, you'll lengthen your life when you love life, when you don't, you'll shorten your life. So, um, yeah. So let's get in. Yeah. You want to jump in? We'll get yeah, into the gonna, controversy. Can we get into how I think he made that jump from fourth place to Mr. Olympia? Uh, and again, this is in the Rick Drayson interview, which we're going to link for you guys. So uh, I, I'll use myself as an example again. You know, who do I know better than anybody else myself? Right, okay, so I made mistakes in my early competitions, and it took me probably three or four competitions for me to realize that I was making mistakes. When you listen to Samia, and I, and I mentioned it earlier when he was the almost guy who he had that potential, like a lot of top guys at the Mr. Olympia, they've all got the potential to win, but the guy that makes the least amount of mistakes is the winner, the guy with the greatest aesthetics, the physique, etc. Samia talks about, for example, realizing that he was overtraining. Literally, he said, I was doing sometimes free training sessions a day in the early part of his career, his pre-Olympia. I would I had, I had that energy, I was young, I was going back to the gym. And I would train again in the evening. I train in the morning, train in the afternoon, train in the evening. And I was doing other stuff. In in his run up to the Mr. Olympia, and Doreen Yates actually says as much about this in, in a couple of his competitions when he was getting those injuries. He says, training too hard. And again, maybe that passion for training that I've just mentioned before <coughs> is where the mistakes come from. You're enjoying yourself so much in the gym, you're putting too much time in, you're standing there too long. And uh, Steve, me, I, I believe, has addressed this in articles that he's written. He talks about stress hormones. If you're training too hard and you're overtrained, you're smashing your central nervous system. You're getting a bunch of chemicals released into your bloodstream to deal with it. Cortisol is an obvious one. He talks about, for example, drinking too much caffeine and cutting back on a caffeine. He actually was taking too much sodium out of his diet. He had to put sodium back into his diet. And even being hydrated and you know it's been you're, you're doing these things for a bodybuilding competition to get into supreme shape so becoming dehydrated instead of having water to flush the system sodium manipulation he actually was to say he wasn't actually using enough when everybody else take the sodium out of the diet but that wasn't what samir needed to do and he needed to learn that the stress almost so for example relaxing you go to the gym you smash the hell out of it dorian used to say that pretty much the highlight of his day the most stressful part of his day was being in the gym the rest of the day, and you can see interviews around that time, he was chilled. His missus was doing everything. All the food was cooked, all this kind of stuff. He was taking all the stress out of his life. And I've been around some seriously, seriously big guys in the strongman community. And there's a perception that these were all incredibly, whether they're on steroids or not, incredibly aggressive, angry, et cetera, et cetera. And this is literally only when they're lifting, only in competition do you see that aggression come out. They're 27 stone. That's 400 pounds. And they, they're like, wow, they're just drifting through the world, really, really relaxed. And Samir addresses this. He says that my stress hormones were too high. 
I had to cut down on the stims, which we've talked about on, on Evo. Don't use, don't overstimulate yourself. Don't take the crazy stuff that you, some guys are using for pre-workouts to get to, to get into the gym. Realize that controlling your cortisol, re removing stress from your life, all of these kind of things help you hold the muscle that you've got and allow your body to anabolically add muscle to you. And this is what I think Samir did. He, he learned from those mistakes. Now, a lot these days we'll probably use gurus. Samir needed to learn this for himself. And part of what's the problem, if, if my memory serves me well, from the time in the, the, art, in the magazine articles were coming out, because it was all in the magazines, it wasn't online at the time, everybody and their dog was giving him ideas as to what he needed to do, but he had to learn the hard way. And it was just his bad fortune that the Giants were just about to come into the sport. And indeed, one of the guys he was competing against, Sir Bertel Fox in the, in, the, in the 1983, was the precursor for the guys that were about to come. And Bertel was, surprisingly, was only about 225, 230 himself. Everything that came afterwards was huge. So Samir's only mistake, if you like, is that he, he, he took a little bit too long to learn. And he'd have probably won two, maybe three Olympias, don't you think, Steve, if he'd have learned he, it a little bit earlier? Well, he talked about it with Rick Drazen, but I think all the guys from that era, Mobster, they they made mistakes too. So it kind of evened the playing field. I think today guys are making less mistakes. We've advanced a lot with what we know, with our knowledge. The internet has – I mean, back then, if you wanted information, what would you do? You either hire someone – to help you a coach Indeed. or you would read books. I mean, you know, what did you have? I mean, back then and guys weren't talking uh, back then in those days, you know, I mean, I interviewed uh, some several Mr. Olympia guys and they were Ziploc Frank Zane. I interviewed him. It's a famous podcast. He was Ziploc the whole podcast. I mean, he didn't want to say a thing and um, you know, and, I guess I can respect that. I'm a fisherman. And if I find a fishing spot um, and guy and I see people walk by, they're like, oh, you catching anything? I'm like, nope, no, I'm not catching anything. It's very bad fishing here. I don't admit that there's fish there. I don't want someone to take my fishing spot. But then you get into his controversies first, Mobster, and I'll let yeah. you jump in um, oh, with yeah, that. Yeah. And also get into his train because we have to discuss this, a very, very important. So after a 1984 competition, um, that he won in 1883 and then in 18 and 1984 he got um he also placed high he got what fourth place in yeah, i believe so, that yeah. one yeah yeah and uh he got fourth place the year before he got fourth place and then in 1983 he won it so the next year he dropped down to six so that was the problem so and what happened was after that 1984 competition the ifbb suspended him for three years to punish him for competing at the WABBA. And I'll let you get into that. Maybe you know a little bit about that because you compete at powerlifting, why they're such assholes when it comes to that. And at the time they were a rival federation. He would later, they, uh, he, we would later find out that Samir got into a very rough argument with the IFBB official over unfair treatment. So it appears that politics got in the way of his repeat. So Samir would, Go, move on and he'd win the 1985-1986 WABBA world championship so he got away from the IFBB and Mr. Olympia so he got back in the in, back in 1988 and he still finished in eighth so that was his last competition before his first retirement and in and that was 1966 Masters Mr. Olympia he placed sixth so 
at 56 years old, he decided to compete at the IFBB Pro World Masters and finished in 11th place. So that's that's pretty impressive. Tell us a little bit about that. What are your thoughts on that, Mobster? Why do these federations do that? I don't know much about uh, the politics in, in bodybuilding, but I know that like in, in wrestling, for example, the WWE, back in the old days, you had two different uh, wrestling federations. And they, uh, you had the WCW, I believe, and the WWF, it was called at the time which changed to WWE, but at the time they were rivals. So if you were a wrestler and you went to the other one, obviously you would piss the other one place off. Now they, I believe they merged. So they're all in one. So tell us a little bit about that and then get into his training style, which is very interesting. He likes talking about his training style. Right. So the, the, I'm, I've, I've got to, in my list of things, there's a great part of the stuff, which is to do with the history of this sport. And I've just recently reread uh, Ricky Wayne's Muscle Wars, for example, and there's a, another book out there that the listeners might look out for called Muscle Smoke and Mirrors. And even one of the uh, two books, I've only just realized that he's written uh, two books, Greg Valentino addresses some of the shenanigans that went on both at competitions and then between the federations. Steve Smith's quite correct. Uh, and this has happened in, in, in a lot of sports, but it seems to happen more, and perhaps it's just because it's our experience, with the federations of bodybuilding, weightlifting, powerlifting. There are, I've, I've, <laughs> there, in this country, at one point, there were 21 different places you could go and get qualified with to become a PT, to, uh, a trainer at a gym. And it took until, I think it was 1980, 1990, when the governments finally grabbed hold of them all and said, listen, you all need to have the same standard. And we had something over here called the MVQ scheme. So 21 different ways to win, a comp, to, to, to become a, a, a trainer. The same thing happened in bodybuilding. There was stuff with the AAU. There was a stuff with the early uh, in uh, part of the IFBB. You had Weber, that Steve Sleet, and one of the things that they were doing, which is incredibly stupid, and for the guy on the street who's got no idea what's going on, as an example, some competition federations had the Mr. Olympia title when the Mr. Olympia had only just been created by the IFBB. There was multiple, and this is not just amateur or and pro or class there was a multiple mr universe competitions i believe both the aau and again the ifb had it uh, i believe Weber had a mr olympia competition a couple of years so you have to have all these court cases and then you've got this and this is typical of a great many sporting federations someone wants to be in charge and i believe the phrase king of their own castle so you have this thing where ours is the best organization and all the other organizations are unofficial no organization has really been recognized with the possible exception, and even then only in its later years, by the governments of the country, which would be the IFBB. It took a long time for that to happen. I'm guessing, Steve, something like 40 years with Ben Weeder hammering on the doors of the IOC and, and, and the, the heads of the member states of sporting federations in 100, 200 plus countries for the IFBB to get the recognition that it has. And even now, even here in the UK, we've got multiple organisations. NABAT still exists here in the UK with the Mr. Universe. There was a Mr. Universe held in Mexico by the IFBB. It gets really, really complicated. And you, you end up with a ridiculous situation of being able to have 20 guys all in one year, even now in 2020, saying that they're the Mr. Universe. But are you the Mr. Universe class one, class two, class three? Did you win the overall? Are you amateur? Are you pro? Did you win it with this organization? Did you win it with that organization? It's just crazy. And it's annoying. I'm a great fan when it comes to these kind of things. 
you should be allowed to compete with any organization. If you want to compete with four organizations in a week, why the hell not? But what you get quite often, and we've had this here with the EFBB in this country, which is only the auspices of IFBB, if you want to go for your pro card, the fellow in charge has out and out banned you from entering any other uh, competition, federation whatsoever. And yet the Americans, before the uh, pro, pro league and the NPC was uh, changed their rules a few years ago, you could actually go to America, compete in a couple of federations, and it was okay. But here in the UK, you could not. So we didn't even have the same rules and regulations from one country to the next. Now, you're a bodybuilder. You want to compete. You don't need to be dealing with all this bullshit. And Samir got caught up in that kind of bullshit. Not only that, as Steve Smith said, the story with the, the referee came out. And this is not unusual. It's, not, it's quite a good idea if you win a competition or nearly win a competition. If you get the chance, one of the tips that people give you is go and speak to one of the judges and say, is there anything you think I could have done that would have improved my chances? Now, it's nice for the judge to be asked, and it's nice for you to get, if he's not an egotistical moron, to give you the right kind of information that maybe that was hippie for, whether it's better tan, better posing. That's that's often not the case. The good guy, it's a long day. You've done 11 hours at the judging table. The bodybuilder comes and asks you, he's tired, you're tired, you have your silly conversations and you end up with a situation where that person doesn't like you. Then they have a drink in the bar with one of the other judges and now he doesn't like you. It gets incredibly political and that's just that. That's without the, the, the infighting between the various organisations, the inability for a professional to literally go off and earn a living by doing multiple competitions, winning as much money as they possibly can and all of that kind of stuff. It's, that's absolutely crazy and I've seen that Weightlifting, I've seen it in powerlifting, I've seen it in all-round lifting, yeah. and multiple think, times. But don't you think it's more in bodybuilding? Because powerlifting, you go lift the bar. The bar doesn't lie. If you lift 500 pounds, you lift 500 pounds. Unless they scratch you. They say, oh, your butt was off the, the bench. I used to compete in powerlifting, and they sometimes they scratch people. They say, your elbows touched your knees when you're doing when you're doing a clean you know, they'll, they'll scratch you for this or that. So maybe there's a little of that, but I mean, a I little think bit, I, yeah. with powerlifting, some for example, we've seen issues with depth on squats. Very you either pick the weight up or you don't in deadlift. That's pretty cool. Uh, the ass hanging off the edge of the bench. But you can too. record it, they can review the tape and they can have that, judges that, decide. So that would yeah. you know, the tape doesn't lie. But I think with bodybuilding, the tape can lie because two people can look at someone's body and say, Yeah, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, yeah. I don't like this. So, I mean, you see what I'm saying? That's the problem. I think that's what frustrates a lot of people. Um, about bodybuilding and it frustrates me watching the Olympics and seeing some of these competitions um, like I'll just throw one out ice skating I'll watch an ice skate but wow they did really good and then they'll get a lower score than the other person it's just like why you know what I'm saying so it kind of you know frustrates people with that so I can see I can see both sides of, of the argument but let's yeah, think, we, yeah let's yeah. finish up your thought let's get into his training a little bit and we definitely have to talk about his steroid cycles that's 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 address Training. His training, and then we'll get into his steroids that he took then and now. Go ahead. So, we've talked to, he's come from, and Steve Smead mentioned this earlier on, from an Olympic and or powerlifting, certainly a weightlifting background. And uh, as a weightlifter myself, or a strength athlete myself, you're talking about a much lower volume than a bodybuilder. And there is a nice argument in terms of uh, uh, being becoming a good bodybuilder later on to having this foundation of strength. So, uh, uh, things like, I mean, Steve Smith talks about, if you want great traps, 
power clean. If you and there's a thing, if, if you see any Olympic lifters, high level Olympic lifters, the power that they're able to demonstrate when they're snatching and, and they're cleaning and jerking and moving weights that I could bear the deadlift dynamically through practically throwing it onto their chest, it gives you an enormous foundation of strength. So his background with that had to had to give him a good core level of strength, great connective tissue, etc., etc., etc. He says that it was um, later on a big advocate for trying new things and not just sticking to the one thing. Again, it was probably that learning process that we've mentioned at all. And so I think the only problem, and I mentioned it earlier, is this idea that he was overtraining. He was probably trying too many different things. But regardless, his physique then was great and became greater later on. Now, if we get into his training later, we're talking about here a typical uh, three-day split with day one being shoulders and arms, day two, chest and back, and day three, legs. Now, one of the things that Samir talks about, as these things refer to Samir's back, is it's, I love to train back. It's one of those things, perhaps, when it comes to training, that he gets a lot of feedback from. Now, for most guys, back because they can't see it, it's very difficult to get them to feel it. And I'm going to talk about the ache in the muscle that you want, the perfect form, the elbows back, the shoulders back, et cetera, et cetera, the arch that you require to, to get the perfect contraption. And Samir had that from day one. And even now, 65 years of age, I still lift and still seems to have that. He talks about, for example, I believe in the Rick Dracing interview, doing bent over roasty with 315 pounds on, on a curling bar. And he's, he's got to be 62, 63 in that interview. It's a couple of years old. 315 pound bent over roast for most people is pretty good. But when you're in your early 60s, it's, it's, it's fucking amazing. So that, that's rip. I mean, I'll give you an example, again, from myself. I like to train, even though it's quite hard quads, but my thing, my niche, has been my, my hands, my grip strength. So there must be a thing for me that the feedback I get from training my hands, from having those aches in my forearms, is something that's enabled me to, to be successful in that particular arena. So it's one of those things. What, what do a lot of guys like to train? Chest and arms. And that's because it's easy to get a pump and a burn and you can see what the hell's going on. Samir, I think, learned with the weightlifting to be strong all over. And having that feeling, that sense of, of, of having a great pump and a, a burn, et cetera, in a place from an early age is what's enabled him to build a great back and to take that into uh, how he trained later on. What about later on, Steve? You know what? Later on, um, from his videos and his talk, um, he, you know, he's talked about um, his training. Um, he talks about a lot that he believes less is better, not to overtrain. He pushes, no overtrain, don't overtrain. That's the hard way. The 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 dog wagging the tail in weightlifting. A lot of guys who are in their teens and early twenties. And we see this a lot. They'll come on the forum to argue. They're like, I work out seven days a week. You guys are pussies. I work out seven days a week, two hours a day. You guys are pussies that don't work out. I'm like, dude, dude, you can get away with that at 17, 18 years old. You can get away with that at 21, 22 years old even. But once you start getting into your 30s, and 40, there's a reason pro athletes, they start getting into their 30s and their play kind of drops off. As you get older, your heart rate, maximum heart rate number, drops by one point per year. So your body, your HGH levels go down, wear and tear, your body starts aging, okay? You know, your body is not able to recover the way it used to. I can, I can remember as a teenager 
we would work out. I mean, I was on the football team. I was on the weightlifting team. We'd come to, to school on the weekends on Saturdays and work out. Our coach wanted us working out on Saturday too. So I'd, I'd be working out six days a week. I got away with it. But now, gosh, I mean, he at his age, you know, if you work out six days a week, you're not doing your body any favors. You're actually, it's counterproductive. So that's one of the things that he stresses. And, you know, uh, we don't know. We don't know. If he had known what he knows now back then, we could argue he oh, would yeah. have better results. But I could say that about anybody. I could say that about Arnold. I could say that about Lee, Lee Haney. I could say that about Frank Zane. I could say that about all, all those guys. As I said earlier on, we, we, we know that he's a passionate guy. We know that he loves training, but he completely understands that his age now, certainly a 60 plus, don't care how passionate, how much fun, how great it is to be in the gym, how great it feels to feel strong. I know I can only do four days a week. I know I can only train three times a week and I can recover from that. And that's what he's saying. And that's what, you need. this is what, one of those things that we're going to give you again, guys. He gets to that age and has the physique that he's got because he's learned this is what I can do. So when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you can do this. But you won't necessarily make any great gains because you're smashing the fuck and killing your central nervous system and not recovering. Perhaps four days a week and you'd recover and you'd add pounds of muscle. Now he's saying at 60 or 65, I still train. I still love to train. I still have the passion for training. But I know that if I train five days a week, twice a day, that I, I, I would be on my ass. I, I would be in bed. I would be complaining about some pains and my shoulders would be, would, would be smashed. And we see this all the time, don't we, Steve, with the guys at 40, 50 years of age, all the guys that were doing doubles, doubling up on their sessions. Yeah, my best buddies are, are in their 50s at the gym. They're all on aspirin. They have to take an aspirin to work out. They have to take an aspirin to go to bed. Their yeah. soft tissues are gone. Their cartilage gone. I know guys, they don't have cartilage left in their knees. They don't have cartilage left in, in their hips. They need hip replacements. They need hip, knee replacements. Gosh, I mean, I just don't, I don't like the idea of having a doctor open me up like that to do something like that. So take care of your soft tissues and, and the wear and tear is brutal. With me, uh, my hair, I, I herniated my discs in my mid thirties, early to mid thirties. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 40 now and um, I got herniated discs and that's something I'm gonna have to live with the rest of my life. You know, what are my options? I can go have a surgery where they cut the, the disc but then I have, I'm going to be trusting someone to open me up. So take care of your body for sure. So we got, we got uh, about 25 minutes left. Let's finish the show. Just talking about the good stuff, the steroids. So let's first talk about what we think he used back in the day, uh, back in the early eighties. So let's make some, you know, realistic hypotheses as to what Samir Benut would have used. So right off the bat, Prima Bolin. Prima Bolin was big um, in this in this mid to late 70s. We know that uh, we're very, very confident, 99% sure that Arnold loved Prima Bolin. Um, so I can assume here Samir Benut was probably running almost a gram of Prima Bolin, maybe 100 milligrams a day uh, because it came in one cc. So rather than injecting it twice a week because of the ester, it's a very painful injection if you inject that much twice a week so it makes more sense just to inject that one cc amp every day you see you see what i'm saying versus doing 700 milligrams a week and cutting it 350 350 and it being uh, painful because that one amp isn't going to be as painful also deca durable was big big in those days especially when they wanted the bulk because it did a really good job of increasing your appetite 
it was very mild and it didn't aromatize like testosterone did. They did not run testosterone in these days, guys. They did not. They didn't have aromatized inhibitors. So instead of testosterone, what would they run? They'd run decadurabolin. Decadurabolin has a atom, okay? That atom change in that decadurabolin turns it from testosterone to a basically testosterone without the aromatization. That's what happens when you take decadurabolin. There's also a change in the fact that it actually causes a change in your body with dihydroandrolone in the body and dihydrotestosterone. So you want to make sure when you're running decadurabolin, you run a DHT derivative, which is what the Primo is in there for. So they were smart in those days. They knew, they knew to always stack a DHT derivative with decadurabolin. They knew. They didn't understand maybe the science behind it, but it was through trial and error. They knew, gosh, when I run the DHT derivative with the DECA, I don't get the DECA dick. So that's what the, that's why they would run almost twice as much primobolin with the DECA. So we're thinking maybe 400 milligrams a week of the DECA. And the nice thing about the DECA is you can mix it with that Primo in the syringe. And that kind of takes, that takes the edge off of the injection, the post-injection pain. Because let me tell you something, I ran the pharmacy grade bare Primo, okay? From back in the day, I ran that. The injection is like injecting motor oil. Like it literally, you can't even draw it up on a 25 gauge needle. You got to use a 23 gauge needle just to inject this stuff. It's like motor oil and you inject it and you're in, on the ground in pain. It is so freaking painful. So they figured out, hey, I can mix that Primo with the DECA. Another thing he probably used, he used the Dianabol. Dianabol was very popular in those days. They didn't use much of it. Because if you use yeah. too much, you're going to get water weight. So he probably used it like away from his competition. Then he cut it off. And that was his, his way going into competition. So that's what we could speculate. This is three steroids that he probably stuck with. Very, very similar to what Arnold did in, in the mid to late 70s as well. What do you think about uh, back in those days? Uh, your reference to the Debo thing, actually, I agreed with. I think it's one of those things that no one was using more than 30 milligrams a day. And the fact that we all use 30 to 50 milligrams a day now is one of those things that when we, when we talk about the sweet spot of a drug, you don't really need to use crazy amounts. And we know some of the stuff. Um, I'm trying to think now. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the guys that's trained here with me, is a judge to put on competitions and he, he, we were talking about Anivar and he was saying that uh, back in the day the amount that you got was three milligrams and guys were having an effect with three milligrams they were taking these tiny little pills with next what well, now would be next to fuck all in the pill and it, it was having an effect so the, the guys were getting something out of what now would be seem to be a ridiculous amount I mean the last time I used it was a hell of a lot more than three milligrams but it wasn't excessive I, I agree with 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 the uh, point about the primo. I would be, I think definitely. As again here, the idea that he was taking the bowl uh, just as a mass gainer and then cutting it ahead of competition, hundred percent. I hundred percent agree with that. Another thing that's interesting as well is around that time. And these are the stories that are around, uh, certainly around the time of his Mr. Olympia, where when the legends were that you got taken out into the car park of the gym and the guy would open up his trunk and these guys were buying buying stuff mostly from over the border, sometimes uh, Pakistan uh, test uh, late, slightly later on uh, and the stuff. This was all coming out of cases, in boxes, in the gym bags. 
and all this kind of thing. A few of the more fortunate ones, especially those guys down in California were using as per Arnold, which would be mid-70s, underneath the, the auspices of a, a prescri prescription from a doctor, and indeed would go to the doctor's surgery to, to have their injections. It's only later on we kind of got into, as I said, the, with the, the stuff in the cars and giving each other jabs in, in the changing rooms and whatever else. Uh, I also seem to recall, you mentioned the Primo again, that reminded me of my early times, uh, and that was a little bit after uh, Samia, with the, uh, again, Kar Karachi test symphony coming in a little uh, glass ampules, which you have to break the top off, and we hardly ever see those now. And in fact, they're such a pain in the ass probably to create that it's almost 100% pharma for you to have those kind of things with very small amounts in them. Again, literally 200 milligrams, 250 milligrams. And, and, and it was <laughs> royal pain in the ass just to break the glass off and, and do what Steve Spee said and changing pins and all that kind of stuff. You guys have got no idea how much easier it is now. And again, think about it in this particular perspective. You can look, click on the photographs and see how Samia looked when he got it all right. And imagine that the amounts that we're talking about here, especially with the D-Bowl taken out, is only 1,100 milligrams of total steroids per week. And indeed, one could argue that he might have even been taking less, maybe 400, maybe 500, 60 milligrams of Primo. And look how he looked at his best. Even when he wasn't winning his competitions, he had a great aesthetic, classical bodybuilding look. And this is one of those things when you take the guys uh, and you say, how would you like to look as a bodybuilder? Do you want to be a monster? Do you want to be a freak? Do you want to be 300 pounds and strong as hell? Or do you want to look like Samir Bunu? I think Samir Bunu's physique is one of us where 80% of the guys, especially the man in the street, look at Samir's physique and go, you know what? That's how I want to look. And this is what he was doing. Now, now... Do we want to talk about how what he would do now as a Mr. Olympia or what he would do now as a 65-year-old fellow, which we touched on earlier upon, on Steve? I, I think that's the thing now. Psalms as a 65-year-old would be great. Any of the growth hormone-inducing stuff, and indeed, I'd like to see him on growth hormone for obvious reasons, because 65, he seems to have very good... So, uh, yeah, get into a specific. What are your thoughts on Psalms, exactly what he would be running now with Psalms and the dosages? And then oh, talk about the HGH a little bit. What kind of dosages do you think that he? Yeah, I would have him so dosage. I'd have it right up to the day that they put him in the coffin. I would have him on two and a half uh, IUs a day or five IUs every other day from now till till the money runs out, or or something like NK six. Absolutely. Yeah, because if you look at his physique now, um, we talked about it on the pre-show and we talked about it earlier. Look at his physique, and we'll link the video. There's a video of him at 62 years old. The way he looks at 62, you cannot achieve that naturally. You have to have great genetics, number one. Number two, you have to have a great lifestyle, like low stress, chill lifestyle, which he can achieve living in, in Southern California. Just go to the beach. If you're stressed out, just go to the beach, sit on the beach, enjoy the, the birds flying around, the ocean and uh, everything. And then also, um, you know, just not abusing steroids. So, yeah, I mean... If you look at the pictures, he's not only lean with a six pack, an eight pack, he's also got size to him. So, yeah, tell us what you think about his. I, I would have him on a low dose. If he was taking uh, TRT, I'd have him on somewhere around between 100 and 150 milligrams of uh, testosterone a week, something long acting like Cipionate. I would have him there 
and keep him there all the time. And this is going to maintain his muscle mass. It's going to let him go to the gym. It's let him enjoy himself in the gym. And he's got the genetics. We know he's got the genetics. You don't get the Mr. 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 Olympia without the genetics. Uh, in terms of anything else, I mean, we've seen him compete. We've seen him guest pose as an older gentleman, 50-odd years of age, nearly 60 years of age when, when he's guest posed. That, for me, would be what the guys like to talk about now when, when they say, I'm, I'm, I'm on TRT, but I'm going to do a cycle. And that, at his age, with his genetics, that's what is perfect. Not for everybody, and I say this on the forums, but for someone like Sami Ibanu, 100%, he can do that because he's got that physique, because he's got that genetics. In terms of anything else that he's putting in there, I've already said already, MK677 or growth hormone, one or the other. Uh, and, and in fact, hopefully, he's able to afford the growth hormone, so let's have everyone on the growth. Um, in terms of him getting into shape, cartering, perfectly sensible, 20 milligrams a day. I would probably actually do him a, a two or three short SARM cycles through the year if he was using SARM specifically and he wasn't on TRT. If he's on TRT, we keep him at 150, 100, 100, 150 milligrams. And then we bring other things in to peak him for maybe a guest posing, even if it's, we've seen him even when he's done a, a, like a panel and you want to be good when he does the interview with Rick, he's talking about veins on his abs. And you can see that he looks vascular, even with the big, the, the top that he's got on. So I, I mean, it's a, thing, a combination of a fantastic diet, the Mediterranean diet, uh, the Lebanese diet is very, very similar, the genetics, which we've already discussed. And then he must know by now what works for him. So I could see him, for example, at his age, just taking from 150 to 300 milligrams of testosterone a week would make a difference. Don't you think, Steve, in terms of upping his mass? I mean, I, I, I feel like he's like, Two, I think he talks about in that interview being 210, 212 or whatever else and then getting down to 190 to get in shape and his children were pointing out that they could see this muscle coming up and stuff like that. And we're not talking about dramatic changes here. He's only getting back some of the muscle that he would have lost to get big and, he, and he's not having, he's not fat. He's not having to drop loads of weight to get back into shape again. But the only difficulty he would have is holding that condition and that's the main thing. Even for me now, as someone who's 56, I completely understand that I cannot be strong or a peak strength all year round. And I would say the same thing for Samia. At 65 years of age, he's going to do this thing where he gets into shape, gets lean, maybe has some pictures taken, once or twice a year. And then he eases off the gas a little bit, which enables him to go back to TRT levels, maybe get back to a nice low-dose psalm cycle, kind of stuff that we recommend to you guys would be absolutely perfect. And again, at 65, he can stay on all the time. He just sort of gets his blood monitored, gets his prostate checked. He looks a real healthy guy. He comes across really well. So I'm thinking, yeah, it's not going to be any, nothing crazy, nothing crazy whatsoever, Steve. It's all going to be mild, mini, mini PCTs. And in fact, yeah, in my mind, if I was in his shoes, I'd probably be on CRT now. And I would literally just double up eight weeks, two times a year tops, and then ease back off the gas for the rest of the time. Try, try and uh, peak around the time of any organized uh, panels or interviews or photo shoots, any time that it's going to come out on stage, maybe present a prize, this kind of stuff. Show them that Sammy Benu can still look good, but not be on the gas all the time. Not be, and again, prostate health at 65 is incredibly important. So I don't want him to be taking high doses. I want him to be on moderate doses. And he can probably do that stuff year round, don't you think? Yeah, what I think he's doing now is definitely got to be low dosage because he looks young. 
He looks vibrant. He looks healthy from his pictures. And yeah, absolutely. Like the videos you see of him when he's in public, obviously he's going to look the best. So for those situations, he's taken the master on, which is, which is safe to use. I don't think he's messing with Winstrel too much, maybe a little bit. I think he's got a lot of respect for the Primo Bolin. Um, when you use Primo Bolin back in the day, you know, 70s and 80s, I don't see how later on in life you're going to get away from it because it worked for you back then. You're going to use it again. I don't see guys saying, you know what, Pre I'm not going to use Primo Bolin anymore. I'm going to use Trend. No, he's not messing around with Trend. Trend is just too harsh. What about Psalms? So, so if it was Psalms and not the uh, steroids, what would you give him then? What would you recommend? Yeah, SARMs, um, probably some GW, uh, 20 milligrams a day. GW would be, you know, the cream of the crop. Um, it's not actually a SARM, but it's considered a SARM and you stack it. And then he probably stack in some Austrian, maybe 25 milligrams a day of the Austrian. I think that, you know, that would work good with the other stuff. And then, and then I'm, I'm with you on the TRT. No doubt he's on TRT and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, um, you know, that's something. I'm not on TRT yet, but I'm definitely when I start getting into my fifties and early sixties, I'm definitely going to go on TRT and I may actually do growth hormone too. So I'm, I'm thinking he's doing a, 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 a basically a therapeutic dose of HGH and maybe blasting it here and there. So maybe something, you know, one, two, I, I use of uh, HGH a day, and then he might bump it up a little bit here and there. But if you bump the HGH too much, it's counterproductive. Now you're going to start, you know, getting, some side effects, the carpal tunnel, the bloat, the, the increased chance of cancer. So no, he's not running five, six, seven, eight. I use of HGH like ah. pro bodybuilder. He's running just a therapeutic dose, maybe a little, a little more here and there. So that's what I think he'd be using now in the Primo. I think he's all over the Primo and maybe yeah. even DECA too. He might be over to all over the DECA. Because he knows those compounds. I'm reminded of, uh, we're talking about seeing him in condition and not just during an interview that we've referenced, but he's done uh, post-Olympia stuff on RX Muscle where they've all been standing outside, the crowd of the uh, the audience is outside, everybody's talking about who's just won and how who plays where and wherever else, and him and a bunch of guys have got together, they've all got microphones, and Sammy is right here in the middle of the pack. And what was fascinating for me to see was uh, Milos Sarsif, who we've just done a recent podcast on, looking absolutely amazing, and I believe he's in his mid-50s, and Samir, and he would have been 61, 62 from the particular interview that I'm thinking of in my head right now, and both these guys, I think they both did an on-camera thing pre when they were about to make their comments, and they're both pulling up their tops and showing you their abs. So, I mean, this is thing where they're getting into condition. They know that they're going to go to the Mr. Olympia. Perhaps they've been invited as a guest of honor. That's not unusual to have them come on and, and do a parade on stage of the former Mr. Olympia winners, which I believe somebody has taken part in. And you get, you, you if, you're, if you're going to go up in your suit and you're tired and they're going to say, this guy used to be a Mr. Olympia, you're going to make sure that you've got no belly, that you're going to look real good. But this is just literally outside with the crowd, with the guys, everybody's going crazy. Who's just won? Who's lost? Who didn't quite do as well as they should have done? And Samir's in this group and I'm, I'm seeing this thing in my mind with Dave Palumbra on the microphone and, and a couple of the other guys. And Samir pulls up his top and shows you his abs. He's wearing a, he's wearing a sort of a sweatshirt and you can see trap muscles and you've got uh, Milos Sarsif on the other side doing exactly the same this is the dream we want to have this muscle for as long as possible we want it to be in shape for as long as possible and he's a great example of a guy that learned from his mistakes does everything right now keeps in shape enjoys his training comes across in a passionate way and looks 
good at 61, 62, and still looks good at 65. And if you can pull up your top when you're 61 or 62 years of age and show your abs, I'd say that you're pretty much in shape, that you're enjoying yourself, you're having a great time, your opinion's still, people want to know what you're going to say. They know that you've been at the very peak of uh, bodybuilding. They know that you know what it's like to have that trophy, that the medal and the, and the check handed to you. And here he is coming across. And, 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 and it's, it's just great to see, don't you think? Being you know what? Club, you can make the argument that his steroid cycle from the early 80s and his physique um, is just as good as his physique now at his age um, years later. Yeah. And yeah. I bet you he's running almost the same stuff. The only difference he's changed is now he's running testosterone. He's running a little testosterone and he's running a little HGH. I think that's really in, in, in some SARMs and he's basically, his diet has improved substantially. Um, the, you know, a Lebanese style of a dieting, it's a Mediterranean style dieting, very high fat, very heavy in vegetables, um, fruits. Um, Lebanon has a lot of fruit grown, um, a lot of um, berries, grapes, stuff like that grown in the mountains. Um, and, you know, uh, olives even, and though, you know, so fats, olive, olive oil, very, very big, big thing in Lebanon. If you, if, um, if you go to other countries, not the United States, maybe in Britain, you have olive oil from Lebanon over there. Um, so, you know, the high fat diet, the Mediterranean style diet, um, low amount of, of meat, high amount of vegetables, high amount of fats, high amount of, um, you know, uh, the, the healthy fats, the, uh, the, you know, the, the olive oils and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you probably would assume that he's still sticking to today. It'd be interesting if, um, I ever got a chance to interview him, Samir, if you're out there and listening to this, you know, hit us up and maybe we'll get you on the podcast, help, help, uh, help a, a brother of your country out a little bit. Come on our podcast. We'd love to talk to you about diet. We won't talk about any PEDs. We'll just talk about diet. So you're out there. Actually, me up. Something very quickly. Two things, actually. Firstly, I actually think this, uh, this kind of cycle works perfectly well for 90% of our listeners, even now. If from a 1980 perspective, it would still work. If it put muscle on Samir back, then it would put muscle on you now. I have never even actually used this total amount that he's used right here, as we're suggesting. So for me, I would probably do very, very well on this, especially if I, I change from, from, from more of a strength thing to, to weightlifting. But something else, so to, to bodybuilding, but something else as well, which we which can touch on as a finish for the, for the uh, PED part of our uh, podcast, is he's made comments about insulin use in bodybuilding, do you recall? And he's actually said, in terms of the bloated bellies, in terms of the guys looking very similar, in terms of some of the uh, grotesque aspects with regards to in, in Sympho, and I'm actually going to touch on the PED thing again, in terms of multiple use of multiple, I mean, it's not uncommon at all to have guys using five or six different kinds of steroids. And sometimes under the auspices of a guru, where you don't even know how you personally are going to react because you haven't taken all these drugs before, the guru has to wait to see what kind of shape you get into and you're supposed to be training for a competition. But let's, let's address, he said specifically, it's recorded, you guys can check this out. He believes one of the biggest mistakes for bodybuilding in the last 20 years is the use of insulin. Isn't that right, Steve? 
Yeah, and there's actually a video um, in the article I wrote. So we'll link the article, and you can go in the article, and he talks about this. He doesn't like the bellies. No. He doesn't like the belly. That's his number one issue, and he's right. He's right. The bellies are ridiculous. The amount of food people are eating, the insulin, okay, that creates these bellies, these bulging bellies. And even though they have six packs, if you look at them from the side, they have to suck their stomach in just to flatten things out. And that's not, that's not the way it should be. Like I I'm with him. I'm with him on that. You should have a flat stomach. You should be sporting at least a two pack. I don't care how old you are. I don't care you know, anything. You should sport a two pack year on. It's healthy. It's healthy. It's going to make you live longer. So, you know, yes, the insulin is a big problem. The excessive amount of HGH, the excessive amount of insulin, um, they, you know, those, those run hand in hand, the excessive amount of food, so, um, he, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that he, he, um, back then obviously didn't mess with insulin and I, I have no doubt now he doesn't miss, mess with insulin at all. And yeah, he's, he's not an advocate of it. So, you know, guys at the end of the day, we talked about, about it on the long forum and mobster and I, um, we're one of the few guys that tell you guys the truth on insulin. Insulin will make you fat. Insulin will make you fat. Um, now the pro yeah, bodybuilders use insulin. I understand that. And I train some pro bodybuilders myself and I do put them on insulin protocols. But the thing is with them, they have the genetics and they're running so much HGH yeah. that they, the insulin use counteracts is counteracted by that HGH. They're running an excessive amount of HGH. Um, we're talking six, seven, eight IUs. That would not only break your wallet, but it would also cause major, major side effects. You're going to be getting carpal tunnel. You're going to have other issues with that HGH. So it's not practical for anybody to want to mess with um, insulin. And Samir Banu is a perfect example of the body that you can shoot to get. You're not going to get his body. He's got, he's got great genetics. You're not going to get his body. Um, and his uncle actually is a powerlifter as well and, and was a powerlifter in Lebanon as well. So he's got genetics for this. Um, but you can strive to look like him and leave the insulin out of it. So I hundred percent agree with him on that. Um, and if you disagree with that, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to bash you don't bash, but, but, you know, monster and I agree on that part and we're with, uh, Samir Banu. So definitely, you know, just do your research on this stuff. The trend also, he doesn't specifically talk about trend, but he talks about the size and trend is giving the people that extra icing on the cake to give them that size. And he's against using trend. Trend is extremely inflammatory on the body. Is it a great steroid? Absolutely. I hit personal records in both size and weight uh, 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 and strength on trend. And without the trend, I would not have benched as much as I benched. I was benching more than twice my weight on trend. I was squatting almost three times my weight on trend. I would not have been able to do that without the trend, 100%. But is trend good for bodybuilding? No, it's not because the bodies aren't looking like they used to look back in the day. So, I mean, now we're getting monsters. And, um, you know, that's the state of bodybuilding. That's that's how it goes. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the arguments against overuse of uh, certain drugs in bodybuilding is shortening of your career. I mean, we see guys come and go. Dallas Carver is just the work one of the worst examples in the last 10 years in terms of the crazy cycle that we believe he took the, the so-called death cycle that was uh, published pretty much everywhere on every bodybuilding forum uh, and it was best guessed by a bunch of people 
And uh, this guy has done amazing genetics and fantastic work ethic, camera work ethic, come across really, really well with everybody that he, he connected with and didn't die too young. And you know, whether, he, whether he choked to death or whether he was taking way, way too much gear and, and, and his body was just in, in being destroyed is the thing that's going to be debated from now for another five or 10 years. So here's the argument, right? You get to be 65 and look amazing because you're moderate in your use. You're uh, more concerned about aesthetics and having a certain physique, etc. This is a thing. So Samir still reps for a bodybuilding company, for example, old school labs. You don't get to do that by having a crappy physique and a bad attitude and, and, and having to take a load of drugs. The same thing applies to Tom Platts. I believe Tom is another person that works for old school labs. And we've just seen recent photographs of Tom. And I actually questioned this. I thought it was a photograph from 10, 15 years ago. He's doing leg extensions and he had the kind of beginning of the outer worldly Platts quads. And I'm like, how the hell is Tom looking like this? But again, genetics, combination of factors, not excessive use of drugs, et cetera, et cetera. If you take Trent, and not just Trent, but keep taking it, multiple cycles per year, then, then the argument becomes that you're kind of wearing yourself down. So this is the kind of advice we try to give you on the forums. And insulin is a good example. I know, and I've said this multiple times on the forums, I know personally guys that have taken insulin and did, if they, the best is that they didn't look any worse, but quite often they ended up being fat. Quick one for you guys, and this is more aimed at the younger fellas. I get asked because I'm a big bloke and they see me moving a certain amount of weight in the gym or wherever else, what are you using? What should I take, et cetera, et cetera. Then pretty much one of the first things I say to the guys is you need to have everything else in place. And this is how guys like Samir get to be where they were and where they are now. Everything is 100% all the damn time. If you're working 10, 12 hours a day, if your food's poor, but you still like to go to the gym, then the easiest thing to change is your diet and you'll add muscle. We get guys coming on the forums asking for steroid cycles and we go, how much do you weigh while you're only having this amount of food? You look at their diet, it's not spot on. Their training's not spot on. Uh, life's got in the way. That happens to all of us. Cut back to two times a week if you're crazy busy. Do this kind of stuff. It's not You can't correct every single mistake that you're making, whether it's nutrition or training or whatever, by taking more drugs. That's not how it works. It's doing everything right and then introducing the drugs. At low amounts, your first cycle will be your best cycle. It doesn't matter if it's 30 milligrams of D-bowl. It will nine times out of 10 be the best cycle you've ever had, the one that your body responds the best to. And then after that, it, it kind of gets different and we get into the whole uh, chemical aspect of, of training and, and, and what happens. And even then, We've had guys come on the forum that haven't trained for eight, nine, ten years, and they say, what should I do? And I say, nine times out of ten, do what you did eight, nine, ten years ago when you had a really good response because it's been eight, nine, or ten years. Your body's practically reset. It's ready to go again. So you don't have to do crazy amounts all the time. And any of the older uh, uh, forum members and any examples like Samia, we are, we are, we're out there telling you this stuff because it's true. You know, yeah. I, I would give you an example again. If I had used Trin when I first took, took steroids, and if I was doing a gram and a half a week back my age then, which was 37, I don't think you, Steve, me and I would be having this conversation now. I think I'd have retired. I'd stop lifting. My, I'd, my, I would have ruined stuff. My joints would be gone. My tendons would have snapped. I've had disc issues like Steve, but that's just a simple case of lifting crazy weights in, in competitions, a bit of wear and tear. And in fact, it's actually improved in the last few years. 
I wouldn't be having this conversation with Steve now because I'd probably given up on training and, and, and it's, all, it's all crap, it's all horrible, et cetera, et cetera. But instead, I'm here. I've just been lifting this morning. We had a great session, a bit of bench, some grips training to some crazy forearm stuff. Got a great pump. And here we are having this podcast. And I want to be in Samir's shoes. I want to be 65 years of Steve Smith and I still smashing stuff out of the park and giving you guys great advice and doing that by doing sensible amounts in the right way and keeping everything else on point. A good diet, a bit of sun, not too much, healthy food, getting out, walking, getting in the fresh air, a reasonably stress-free lifestyle and a moderate amount of anabolics every so often. If I get to have a six-pack like Samir when I'm 65, I'll be a very happy man. Steve? Yeah, that sums it up, guys. So we can learn from Samir in this one. I think the, the lesson from this one is Samir, you know, he walks the walk, he talks the talk. Back then he did it in the, in, in the early 80s he did it. And now he's doing it. He's still doing it. He's still kicking ass. So you can follow what he did and, and get a great body. You don't have to run a crazy amount of steroids. And he didn't. I don't believe he's ever run a crazy amount of steroids. You know, he, but you know, he's run. Yes. Did he abuse steroids? Absolutely. He abused steroids. You run, he was running at his peak. I mean, one, maybe one and a half grams at the most, but it was a mild, mild steroids. So yes, he, he used steroids and that's abuse. You use anything more than what your body produces of hormones. It's technically abuse, but now the guys are running two, three grams. They're running a gram of testosterone. They're running almost a gram of trend. So it's, it's not what he did. So we'll, we'll talk about some other bodybuilders and we've talked about bodybuilders who did that. So you can check out the episodes and see what they did. And this is basically Samir. Samir didn't do that. So we'd be lying to you if we came out and said that Samir ran a gram of trend and a gram of testosterone, <laughs> you know, we'd be lying to you. So that's not what we do here. So any final words, monster, before we close up, we have uh, 20 seconds left. Any final words? We're trying with our, with our podcast for the truth in bodybuilding to give you guys great advice and learn. Love the sport, love to train, enjoy your life, and moderate amounts of anabolics, people. That's the lesson for today. All right, for Steve Smee and the Mobster, this has been episode 116, Samir Banu, the Lebanese Lion. Talk to you guys next week. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye.